When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped. Leaped. All right, Luke two. I got hung up on left anyway, so it's uh, it was leaped. Left is with a T. Bad start this year. Most of that's okay. Luke two, forty one through fifty two. Um, Luke 2, 41 through 52. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Keep going. But <laughs> man, <laughs> look. <laughs> but oh, this is a good. This is a good one. To, but his mother treasured all things in her heart. <laughs> and. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Thanks, John. Give John a hand. Yeah. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. I want to ask you, have you ever said this to yourself? Man, sometimes God just seems so confusing. That's something I said to myself a lot this last year. One year ago today, first sermon of 2019, I stood up here preaching the first sermon of the year, full of anticipation. The church was growing. Couples were getting married. People were having babies. New ministries were forming. Watch out, 2019. Here comes New City. It's going to be a great year. And I preached our first sermon on mission. In 2019, we are going across the border, across the seas, across the street to reach people for Jesus. And then within, it seemed, just a few short days, disaster struck. Death after death, disease, divorce, destruction. There were Sundays last year where I got up to preach and it felt like a storm cloud was just hanging over my head. The mood was somber. You look up, you're like, what the heck is going on? 
Now, the truth is, God also did some amazing things last year. We had a bunch of people get baptized. We had a bunch of babies get dedicated. We sent a bunch of people on missions trips and connected with a bunch of places where we're going to be doing follow-up missions trips this next year. And there were moments of celebration and joy, but there were moments of mourning. And there were a lot of moments where I think many of us felt completely confused. God, what are you up to? So as we look forward into 2020, let me ask you, what do you do when your plans go sideways? What do you do when you've got all these things laid out and your life all of a sudden takes these unexpected turns? And how can our faith inform those moments of confusion? This story that John just read, that Luke has prepared for us, holds a a lot of keys. It has a lot to say It has a lot of hope for us as we face this new year. And I'll tell you why. This is the only passage in scripture that's not about Jesus as a baby. It's not about Jesus as a man doing ministry. This is the only passage in all of scripture about Jesus as a child in between. And Luke includes it here at the tail end of the Christmas story for a reason. He doesn't just do it frivolously. He's making a point. But what is the point? As I thought about that, a lot this week preparing for this, I realized something I've never seen in this story before. And that is, I think Luke's main point in this passage is that Jesus is confusing. (laughs) The nervous laugh, that's what I was going for. (laughs) Like verse 50 says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. This is not like a lot of other Bible passages where Jesus says or does something really cryptic And then he steps over to the side and he explains it. And everybody's like, oh, see what you did there. In this passage, he explains nothing. Jesus says and does things in these completely, seemingly indecipherable, unaccountable, almost irresponsible ways, it seems. And then when you get to the end of this passage, you realize, yeah, he's just confusing. He confuses everyone. In this passage, he not only confuses the people who don't know him, he confuses the people who do know him and love him dearly. And yet, here's what this passage is saying. We're supposed to trust him anyway. See, we just came through Christmas. Christmas is this warm time. It's fun. Many of us took off work. We have a blast. We, you know, there's carols and fireplaces and singing and gifts and parties and all kinds of fun stuff. And it's a feel-good time for most of us. And the early passages in Luke are like that. They're feel-good passages. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Goodwill to everybody. It's going to be an awesome time. So why does Luke include this story here? I'll tell you why. Luke, Luke is preparing us for the rest of the book of Luke. And he's preparing us for the rest of the year and the rest of our life. Because not all of our life is the warmth around the fireplace at Christmas. After the feel-good times of Christmas comes New Year And what Luke wants you to know is whether you do or whether you don't believe in Jesus, Jesus will often be a confounding, confusing, even at times disturbing figure. He will often do things in your life that he doesn't fully explain. He will do things that you'll have a lot of trouble accounting for, trying to accept. He will allow things in your life, and you're going to struggle to understand them. So let's take a look at these three points so that we can find the hope 
in this new year, in this passage. From the very end of the passage, the first point, verse 50, is Jesus is a confusing person. He confuses everybody. We're going to spend most of our time there. Point number two, verse 51. However, Jesus is totally committed to loving and serving those of us whom he regularly confuses all the time. And thirdly, verse 52, therefore you're free, if that's true, to go home and to trust and to treasure him. And if you do, he will grow in your life and character. Those are the three points. We tracking? Let's roll. First, or uh, point number one, Jesus is confusing. He's a confounding, confusing figure. Look at uh, verses 46 through 49. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. See that? amazed, in awe, baffled. They're trying to wrap their heads around this 12-year-old, right? And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So the first point is that people who don't know who he is, that's, that's the people in verse 47, are astounded. Why? Because He's breaking all of the categories. You don't have 12-year-olds sitting around arguing and discussing and debating with the top scholars in a civilization. They've never seen a 12-year-old do something like this. So on the one hand, you have these people who don't know who he is and don't trust their lives to him yet. They don't actually believe in him, and they're totally astounded. He's he's outside the box. He's, He's breaking their categories. But also, it's just as astonishing for the people who do believe in him. The people who do know who he is, it's verse 48, are completely astonished. In fact, and we'll get to this in a second, when his parents realized not just that he was left behind for three days, but also that it didn't seem to bother him at all, right? They see that, and they're, they're trying to understand it. He wasn't making any effort to get back to them. He was just happily sitting there and debating. He's 12. He's not four or five years old, right? He's... He's really smart. If he knows enough to debate the top scholars, then he knows what his parents must be thinking and feeling, and his mother can't understand it, so she rebukes him. See, they're all grappling with this idea of Jesus who's totally confusing them. And the point here is this. Jesus will confound and confuse and often disturb not only the people who don't actually profess faith in him, but also the people who do. Let's think about those two categories for a minute. First of all, let's think about people who don't fully trust in Jesus or don't profess faith in him. Today, there's people of other religions, and there's people of no religion. People of other religions, people of no religion, people who are skeptics, people who just don't believe in anything necessarily. And they all look at Jesus, and they say complimentary things about him. Right? They say things like, Jesus was a great teacher, he was a prophet, he was a wise person, he was a very, very loving person, he was a revolutionary, somebody that we can all learn from. And they love to say all that. But does Jesus fit into that category? That's what we, who they tend to believe he was. They tend to believe Jesus was all these things, but he's not God. But when you actually take a look at the documents, when you actually take a look at the evidence and you actually look to see if that's who Jesus was, then the answer is no. Jesus doesn't fit into that category. Let me show you why. This passage is really interesting to me because it happened the year Jesus was 12. Okay, now, when a young Jewish boy turns 13, what happens? Anybody know? 
bar mitzvah. That's right. A young boy, he becomes a man, boys to men, right? And he, he's got this, like, interesting transition in his life. He enters into this full economic and social adult, like, responsibilities. He's held to account for anything he says and promises he makes. Back then, they could actually be betrothed at this age, right? So when this boy was 12, preparing for the bar mitzvah, it's this special time of mentorship and hanging out with his dad. His father would take him around, you know, and, and, and he would apprentice the boy in his trade, in carpentry in this case, because Jesus' father, Joseph, was a carpenter. And his father would apprentice the boy in, in life and faith and culture. So every year they would go up to this temple um, for the Passover feast, go up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem actually would swell to about eight to ten times its regular size. People camping out everywhere within the city walls. And people came from all over the country, and they would all come to Jerusalem. So this would have been a really special year for Jesus because this is the year that his father Joseph is going to mentor him and instruct him and walk him all over Jerusalem and say, hey, son, look, this is what the temple is. This is why we have a temple. This is what the temple means to us. And, and this is Passover. And this is the lamb. And this is what partaking of the lamb means for us. And this is what our faith means. And this is who we are. We're the children of God. So it would have been this intense time of mentoring. And Joseph would have been walking around the city streets and the temple and all these places with Jesus and explaining life to him. And when their extended family got together for Passover, Joseph would have pulled Jesus aside and explained the Passover to him in depth and prepared him one day to lead his own Passover meal. So now we, we find the Passover's finished. And we're told in verse 43, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it, thinking he was in their company. They traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Now, I know that sounds crazy irresponsible, but just a sidebar, this culture is very different from our culture. What happened here is not as nearly um, as irresponsible, maybe, as it seems to us at first, because in this time, it wasn't just the nuclear family with the white picket fence and 2.5 kids that raised the kids, right? It was the entire family. It was a much more collectivist type of society. So you had uncles and aunts and cousins and grandparents and friends and in-laws who would help raise the kids. You know, it takes a village. Um, and, and the point is that this wasn't strange at all. It wouldn't have been strange for Mary and Joseph to see Jesus off playing with the kids and then pick up the stakes of the tent, pack everything up and take off. And then a day later say, wait, what? Where is Jesus? And they're, they're completely baffled by that. And I know you see that and you're like, dude, you should have checked. Surely, surely you should have checked. Well, actually, no, they, they didn't have to back then. And don't call me Shirley. Um, <laughs> I watched too many movies over Christmas break and I shouldn't have watched Airplane. Okay. Um, their society was more communitarian than ours, right? It was, it was completely different. So from what we can tell, um, they journeyed a day before they figured out he was gone. They journey a day back, and then they look for him for a day. And after three days, they find him. And what's Mary say to him? She says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I, notice she starts with your father and I, not me, your father, the one who's mentoring you, right? In this older society, she's like, literally like shaming him. She's rebuking him, right? This is, here you're supposed to be honoring Joseph. 
You're supposed to be mentored by him. You're supposed to hang neck and neck with him and become like him. And that's, that's why in this traditional society, like, she's like, how dare you dishonor your parents? How dare you dishonor me of all times now, Jesus? And what's Jesus say? He says, mom, I am honoring my father. Why were you searching for me, he says? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But what? She didn't understand. See, what Jesus says here is far more startling for us than it might appear for a couple of reasons. First of all, we live in a Christian slash post-Christian culture. We've been heavily influenced by Christian ideals. So the idea of God as father is pretty commonplace, even among people who aren't Christian. The idea of God as father is just like a normal thing. We mostly kind of take that for granted. So what he says here probably doesn't strike you as peculiar at first, but the reason why verse 50 says that when he talked about God as his father and he talked about the temple as his father's house, they didn't understand is because they were completely confused. They didn't say, oh, of course, he's talking about God as his father. God is all of our father. No, let me, let me tell you why this was so startling. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see very, very rarely in the Hebrew scriptures is God ever called father. And when that term is used, it refers to God as the source of the entire nation. So it's like this collective term about God's relationship to a group of people. It's not an individual relationship in the Old Testament. So never, ever, ever do you see the word father used as a personal address, like somebody talking to God and saying, hey, dad, let's hang out. No, it's, it's always calling God as their father. That would be way too intimate. It would be way too personal. This is God we're talking about here. And you guys know, like when Jewish people would write and Hebrew people would write, it, it would say, if they spelled out the word for God, it would just say G-D. They wouldn't even write the name of God out because it was too commonplace if you did that. This is the God of the universe we're talking about here. And yet here's Jesus doing something that's virtually never been done before. He talks about God as his father. It's a personal relationship that no one has ever claimed before in scripture. And on top of that, he doesn't just do that, but he also rebukes his parents. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> right? Think about it. He's not stupid. He's really smart. He's debating the top scholars of his day. He's not an idiot. And yet he says, why were you searching for me? That's a rebuke from Jesus to Mary. And then he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or in other translations, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Jesus rebukes his parents. And in this moment, he doesn't refer to Joseph as his father. He refers to God as his father. Here's what he's saying, and all the commentators actually agree with this. What they say is Jesus, at this point, is saying, my relationship with God relativizes my relationship with you. I don't really have to obey you. Whoa. And then the next moment it says, Luke writes down that Jesus went home and obeyed them. That's really important. We'll get back to that, okay? <laughs> but here's the point. Jesus is trying to say, if I'm obeying you, it's voluntary. Now, it may be a little hard to tell the exact level of Jesus' messianic consciousness at this point, but what else could he say? You know, he says, look, you know, I'm going to obey you, yet I don't have to because my relationship with God is category shattering. That relationship relativizes all 
other relationships, but I will obey you even though I don't have to. You know why I don't have to? I'm older than you, right? He's the only person who could ever say that. He's the first child that could ever say that to his parents. One biblical scholar, uh, Daryl Bach, puts it like this. Jesus Christ, by simply saying this, is claiming authority such that even the most basic human relationships, like the parent-child relationship, are now transcended. By this act and statement, Jesus transcends all normal categories of evaluation, and he says so. He essentially says, you can't evaluate me. I evaluate everyone else. He's 12, but he already knows. He knows who he is. I, um, I, one of the things that kind of gets on my nerves as I do watch movies is how we struggle in our current cultural moment in society with the idea of just like undiluted nobility. Uh, Gavin and I watched the old 1960s Prince and the Pauper the other day. Thank God for Disney Plus. And uh, the, the prince just knows who he is. He's not making any bones about it. He, he's very confident in the fact that he's the prince. But if you look at movies nowadays, like uh, Lord of the Rings, which just came out recently, uh, a few years ago. And um, if you look at the way Aragorn um, essentially acts as the one who's supposed to be the new king, it's very different from how Tolkien writes it in the books. Because in, in the books, Tolkien, like, he's got feelings. He, he's a human being, but he's very confident he's going to be the king. But when you watch the movies, he's like, ah, oh, he's got all this angst about it. And he wants to be the king, but he's not really sure. And that's not in the book. Did you guys even read the book, right? They, but here's the deal. In our society, you have to have all this angst about stepping into any kind of position of nobility because we're wrestling with self-actualization and all that. If you watch the Narnia movie, Peter is way more reluctant than he is in the book. He has to struggle. Do I, do I really want to do this? Do, I don't know. Is this going to be very hard? Watch the movies about Jesus. Watch them like uh, Last Temptation of Christ or Jesus Christ Superstar. He's always struggling. Is this who I really am? I don't know. And that seems to be more authentic to us in our cultural moment. But here in this passage, here's 12-year-old Jesus saying, no, that's who I am. And he says, I can't obey you, but it's voluntary. And then he says something else that's remarkable. He says, I had to. I had to be about my father's business. There's this little Greek word that means it was a necessity. It had to happen. It was necessary. At the very end of the book of Luke, we, we see the same thing happens. There's these two disciples. They're on the road to Emmaus, and they're completely confused. They've lost Jesus, right? Why in the world did he go to the cross? Why did he suffer? Why did he die? What is going to happen with this movement? They're confused. And then they meet this stranger who's very calm, and he uses almost the same Greek grammar. He says, don't you realize he had to die? See? So here's the confused parents. What are you doing, Jesus? Why would you do this? And here's little calm Jesus saying, don't you realize I have to do this? He says, my father has a plan for salvation, and I have to do it. So first of all, if you're a person who says, oh, I can't believe Jesus was divine, that he was the son of God, that he was the creator of the world, that he's coming to judge all things, here's some truth for you. The real Jesus is you see here, and as you'll continue to see if you read the book of Luke, as we go further into the year, he does not fit into your category. He disturbs you. You really can't say, oh, well, it's just one more religion. 
and Jesus just was one more great teacher and all the religions have this great teachers. No, sorry. Jesus won't let you do that. He disturbs you. He breaks all of the categories. He says, this is who I am. I'm the unique son of God and there's no one else like me. So you can reject him or you can accept him, but you can't just fit him into a pantheon with all the other great religious teachers. And that's just the way he disturbs the people who don't believe in him. He's every bit as much, if not more disturbing to the people who do believe in him and the people who love him. And that's the meaning of this text. Let's take a look at it. Mary and Joseph, they're trying to say, I don't get this. I don't understand. You're smart. We know you're smart. Yet here you are saying, why were you searching for me? What are you talking about? You're dishonoring us. This, this isn't right. It's not fair. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. They're amazed when they come back. And notice, they're more astonished, not that he was left behind. After all, kids can be left behind. But they're, they're more astonished that he's not bothered by it at all. He's just sitting there. He's debating. And, and they're astonished. And he says, I had to do it. One of the things that you're going to find as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a lover of Jesus Christ, is that over and over, Jesus will constantly confound your expectations for how he should behave and how he should be treating you. On the road to Emmaus, they didn't understand. Why did Jesus do that? Jesus says, I had to. You can't understand, but it's part of this plan of salvation that my father has. Mary says, why are you doing this? We love you. Why have you treated us like this? Jesus says, I had to. It's what my father wanted me to do. It's part of this plan for salvation. Do you understand that today? In other words, we have a tendency to say, oh, I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ, and then I'm going to obey him and dedicate myself, and I'm going to follow the rules, and now he's going to answer all my prayers. It's going to be so cool. It's going to be awesome. And you're going to find that Jesus will constantly not only do things that don't seem to fit, but will also say things that don't seem to make any sense. Um, uh, last year, I think, my daughter went to Gordon-Conwell, took some summer classes as part of a missions thing, and uh, Elizabeth Elliot uh, was a writer there and a professor there for years. And she'd been a missionary. She taught at Gordon-Conwell. And uh, she wrote a book several years ago called No Graven Image. It's this fictional account of a missionary who goes into the, the jungle and, and tries the rainforest there and tries to get a translation of the Bible for the tribes there in the jungle. And as the book moves forward, you know, she, everything starts to fall apart. She accidentally kills the only person who knows how to translate into that language. She's expelled from the tribe. Everything falls apart, and then that's how the book ends. And, and when she wrote it, people hated it. Like, she got hate mail. The president at Gordon Conwell said, I got the quote from the article I was reading, um, that, that he, he basically personally kept it off the Christian best book of the year list to make sure fewer people would read it because he said the same thing. If you really love Jesus and you really dedicate yourself to him, he's not going to let that kind of thing happen to you. That's, that's what we believe generally in the West, right? God, wait, if you love God, he's going to make your life good. You know what she said to all this? Here's what she said. She said this book was actually based on what happened in her life. You know, many of you know, may know the story. Her husband, Jim Elliott, was one of a few guys who went into, uh, actually near Ecuador, where we're going on a missions trip later this year, went into the rainforest to, to speak to the tribe, the Udani tribe, and they were going to go in there and try to translate scripture. And the night before they went, they sang these songs, and they prayed, Lord, protect us. And one of the songs they sang was, Be Our Shield and Our Defender. And the next day they went out, and they were speared to death. 
And they left behind wives and kids, and there seemed to be no sense to it. Why did God let that happen? And here's how Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot wrote about that incident. I dethrone God if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my ideas. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. God, sometimes you're so confusing. Jesus is confusing even to people who love him. Listen, even if you're feeling good right now, even if everything is great in your life right now, you know, it's Christmas, trust me, time comes for all of us. It rains on the just and the unjust. It won't be long when, like Mary, you'll be looking at Jesus wondering, how could you treat me like this? How could you let this happen in my life? I'm, I love you. I'm giving myself to you. We're going to go across the border, across the seas, across the street. Wait, what? What happened? Who, who died? What happened? Often you'll find that Jesus doesn't really give you much of an answer, at least not in the short run. Are you ready for that? Okay, that's the, that's the heavy point. Point number two, but... Jesus is committed to loving and serving those he confuses. Now, if Jesus is that confusing and that disturbing, the question obviously is why would you want to follow him at all? <laughs> like, oh my gosh. The answer is in verse 51. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Now, why did he do that? He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to be obedient. Here's why. I love that place in Luke 8, and we'll get to it later on in the year, when the, they're out on the sea, Jesus told them, let's go out on the sea, and then he's asleep on the boat, and it's beautiful, and all of a sudden, the storm comes up. And the disciples wake Jesus up, and they say, Master, Master, don't you care that we perish? Don't you care that we're about to die right now? And how does Jesus respond to them? He says, where is your faith? Martin Lloyd-Jones preached this awesome sermon. I like, if you are looking for somebody to nerd out on, listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons. They're amazing. Um, and uh, in Luke 8, and he says, um, Jesus says to them, where's your faith? And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, notice he says, where's your faith? Not, why didn't you have more faith? In other words, Jesus is saying, and this is from Martin Lloyd-Jones, you're not being rational. You know enough about me and you're not using it. You know enough about me to handle the storms of life, and you're not using what you know. You're saying, Master, why don't you care that we perish? And Jesus says, are you sure your premise isn't flawed? I, is your premise that if I loved you, then I wouldn't let you ever go through anything bad? If I loved you, I wouldn't let you be harmed. I wouldn't let you go through storms. I wouldn't let you feel like you're sinking. Is that your premise? You say, if you loved me, you wouldn't let these things happen, but I do love you. And if you don't feel loved by me, it's because of your faulty premise. Why does Jesus go down and obey them when he knows who he is? Here's why you should follow him even when he confuses you. And I'm guessing, I think it's a good guess, but when preachers say we're guessing, you know, we come and we say, this is what the word of God says. Other times we're like, I'm guessing here. So I'm, I'm guessing at this one, but it's hard for me to imagine that Jesus would have stayed behind, would have been able to contend with all those wise teachers, would have 
been able to do all the things we see in this passage, would have stayed in the temple courts unless something happened to him besides just walking around the streets of Jerusalem with Joseph and Joseph telling him who he's going to be. Like Joseph was going around and saying, you're going to be a carpenter. Joseph's going around saying, you're going to be a faithful Jew. Joseph's going around saying, this is where you go to temple. This is how you do the Passover. This is what these things mean. What if Jesus, and Jesus virtually hints at this in the passage, what if his real father was doing that too? What if his real father was walking around with Jerusalem and, and, and just going like a million times deeper? And when he went to the temple, his real father said, you're the new temple. You're going to make this place obsolete. And when he went and walked along the streets, his real father said, you're going to walk these streets much later and you're going to be carrying a cross on your back. And when he sat at the Passover table and he looked at the lamb, his real father said, you're going to be the Passover lamb. The fact that Jesus seems to have known that At age 12, they had this messianic consciousness. His his real father gave him the understanding of who he was, and then he went home, and he obeyed his parents. How many kids would obey their parents if they really didn't have to? How many of us, adults, would obey anybody if we really didn't have to? Very few of us, right? Oh, come on, be honest. (laughs) Like, I I would. I love to obey. I (laughs) always Rules, 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 you know. <laughs> Maybe you're that person. I'm not, but I respect that. That's <laughs> Why was Jesus doing this? Why? Um, when I think about John the Baptist, uh, I think about that moment where John the Baptist is baptizing. And what happens when John sees that Jesus wants to be baptized? He goes, me baptize you? I should be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? And what's Jesus say? It has to be this way. In order to fulfill all righteousness, he says. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to live the life you should have lived. I've come to die the death you should have died. I've come to rise again to new life so that you could have hope beyond this life. Jesus Christ, even at age 12, to some degree, realized there was a plan. He was the son of God. He was the greater temple. He was the Passover lamb. And he went home and he obeyed them. He submitted to God's plan for his life. And that's why you can trust him, because he absolutely loves you and I, because he's totally committed to serving the people he often confuses. His parents in this story, the disciples later in the story, you and I much later in the story. Can you see how how this story is a reflection of him totally dedicated to loving and serving us even when we're confused? So when a storm comes up in your life, and it will, don't say, Lord, why are you letting me go through this storm? Don't you care that I perish? When a storm comes up, instead say, Jesus, you bowed your head to a far worse storm than this. You bowed your head to the storm of eternal justice, and you didn't abandon me in this storm, but you stayed in that storm for me. And if you didn't abandon me then, you're not going to abandon me now. I don't know why you're letting me go through it, but I know you're going to get me through it one way or the other. And maybe my life will end in this storm, but I'll open my eyes and heaven will await and you will await. And I know right now you're committed to me, just like you're committed to your parents. You didn't have to be. It was voluntary, but you did it. So he confounds and confuses and disturbs. However, he's totally committed to those he confuses. And thirdly, very briefly, 
you should do what Mary does. What's Mary do here? What's she do? She takes these confusing bits of information and she treasures them. She treasures them, even though she's confused. Verse 50 says she didn't understand. She didn't know everything about why he was doing what he's doing, but she takes what she does know and she treasures it. If you're going to go through storms or if you one day will go through storms, maybe some of you are in them right now, you may not be currently confused about what's going on, but trust me, confusion happens in all of our lives. It won't be long. Christmas is the nice filling time of year, but there's a whole lot more year to go around. When that happens, do what Mary did. Don't just be stoic. Treasure what he's done for you. Treasure what you know of him. Treasure the promises of God, and then he'll grow in your favor. Then he'll grow in grace. He'll grow in your heart and in your soul and in your mind, and he'll duplicate his character in you. And you will grow just like he did in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, a year ago, I stood here and so sure of what we were going to accomplish, so bold about the future. And I stand here now looking into 2020, realizing that we do not know what 2020 holds. But to be cliche, because it's a good one, we do know who holds 2020. Yeah? And despite all the things that could go wrong, and despite all the things that could go right, all of it, the truth is that he is with us. And that truth graces me with the boldness, like never before, boldness to trust him more. Boldness to trust more of my life and more of my control and more of my heart to him. Boldness to love and boldness to serve and boldness to commit to those around me like never before. Boldness to step out into the unknown and to meet new people across the seas and across the border and across the street on mission wherever he leads. Boldness. And it's not a foolhardy boldness that says, oh, well, because we're doing the will of God, everything's going to be peachy. It's a gospel-informed boldness that says, no matter what, no matter what, I believe he's working out something far greater than our plans for our ultimate good. That's why Romans 8.28 says, and we know that God works in all things together according, or for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Look, it's not all good, but he works it all together for good. Yeah? yeah. Anybody make Christmas treats at all in the holidays? Make a cake or brownies or something? You have all those different ingredients one person, Marco, did. Thank you, Mark. We have a baker. Welcome back. It's good to see Jared and Doreen back from Africa. Love you guys. Um, so what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, cake. Uh, like, you ever, like, with brownie batter, you ever just want to lick the bowl out? It's so good. And you're like, are the eggs going to give me indigestion? I don't know, but it's so good. I'll risk it, you know. Brownies are so good. You ever just take flour and just eat it straight? No. <laughs> or just like a mound of butter? Maybe if you're on the keto diet like me, you're like, butter. <laughs> or just a bunch of sugar. Like take the individual ingredients of those brownies and just chow down. 
one after the other. You mix them together, it comes out pretty good, but on their own, they can be bitter. They can be sour. They can be weird. Right? Cinnamon challenge. <laughs> it's not all good, but it all works together for our good. I'm bolder now because I know he's with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us, no matter what he leads us into, so I can face anything with him. And you know why else? One more scripture. Because no matter how bad it could get, he faced far worse for me. Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame. You know what that's saying? That's saying for you and I right now, look, you were his joy. For you and I, and for a glorious church, and for the redemption of of all creation and his people, he faced every moment of pain and confusion. He had those moments too, and he faced them for you. For you, he bore the guilt, the fear, the shame. For you, for you were his joy. Is he yours? Is he your joy? If so, you can face anything. Knowing that you have him, knowing that as he is now seated with the Father, that verse says, we will forever be as well seated with him. You can face uncertainty with boldness and joy and courage and, and hope because you know that you're with him. So you're certain of what really matters. You're never gonna lose him. You're not gonna lose your soul. You're not gonna lose the things that matter. So you can have hope no matter what you face in this life. Treasure him and his wisdom and character and certainty will grow in you. I I had some stuff to say about 2020. Um, Some fun comments about where we're going this next year. Actually, I want to wait. <laughs> I want to wait because I don't want to skip over this so that we can just be hoorah about the new plan. Because that's what we do, right? We get, like, we get excited about a plan, and we go for it until that plan doesn't work. And then we wait for a new plan to get excited again. How about we just get excited about the God of the plan? and wrap our lives around him, yeah? And this next year, maybe, maybe this week, maybe we'll make a video, maybe next week we'll talk about it. I don't know, maybe we'll wait till that members meeting. We are, we've got, I'm so excited about this next year, I am. But man, it's kind of like when the disciples return from all the ministry they were doing, the 72, and they come back, and they're rejoicing, and Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life, Right? I I don't want to rejoice because our plan is so great for this next year. I want to rejoice in him and that his plan is better than ours and that we're we're going to make awesome plans and some of them are going to be perfectly in sync with what he wants and it's going to be amazing and others are not going to be in sync with what he wants and it's going to be disaster and it's going to be amazing because it all works together for our good and for his glory. So let's talk more about that plan later. And let's take time to pause and submit our plans. Maybe you made some plans for this year. Maybe like me, you actually, instead of being cynical and skeptical, decided, hey, New Year's resolutions, they're not all bad. I'm going to make some this year. What if you submit those to God? What if you submit every plan in your life to God right now and say, Lord, I trust your plan more. I want your plan more. I submit my life.
I surrender to you because I trust that you're with me. Even when I'm confused, you're committed to me and I'm gonna treasure that truth in my heart. Let's pray. Mm. Father, we love you. And I ask you that you would help us to prepare for whatever it is that you're gonna bring in this 2020, the blessedness, the brokenness, the beauty, all the good, even the tough times. Christmas was a great time of eating and, and seeing people and taking time off work, but real life crowds back in. And we, we thank you that this gospel writer, Luke, has prepared this passage to help us transition back into the fray of life. He's gotten us ready for whatever is coming next. And there's going to be some awesome stuff. And there's going to be some confusing stuff. And I pray that whatever you bring that we would bless your name, that we would draw closer to you and closer to one another through whatever it is that you have for us. Hmm. Help us to remember that when those things happen, that you aren't able or you aren't going in your wisdom to let us know at that moment why those things are happening. But we pray that you would teach us to treasure what you have done for us, to treasure your love for us so that we can get through the storms of life and deal with the confusing moments and look forward and hope to the ultimate future you're bringing and celebrate those beautiful moments of hope along the way that toward those future, those, those signposts that point us to what heaven will be like one day. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.